Hello and welcome to One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide business leaders with the latest commentary on evolving business and economic news that impacts healthcare, business, and the workplace. In each episode, our One Digital advisors will be addressing evolving coronavirus situations, translating them for employers so they can be proactive for their organizations and develop their business planning strategies. Good afternoon and welcome to today's COVID-19 Small Employer Advisory Session, your top 10 return to workplace questions answered. I'm Tom Weimer, the National HR Consulting Practice Leader for One Digital. Before we begin, on behalf of more than 2,000 employees of One Digital, I want you to know how much we truly appreciate the time and energy you're investing with us today. These are challenging times for us all, and we know that your time is valuable. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues from our Irvine, California office, Jamie Webb Akasaka, Vice President and Legal Counsel. From our Atlanta office, David Hughes, who leads our human resources consulting practice in the Georgia market and Sean Nelson, Regional Managing Director, HR Consulting, from our Cleveland office. This series of advisory sessions has been in response to a rapidly changing economic and health health environment where business and HR leaders have been forced to take unprecedented actions to protect employees and their organization. The luxury of deliberating on key decisions vanished overnight, but the impact of those decisions will be key to survival. Bold action requires taking a holistic look at what drives the business, with a focus on efficiency and managing human capital risk. At One Digital, we chose to look at the future through a wide lens that blends multiple elements of the workforce life cycle into an overall business strategy. As presented in this slide, we believe that all elements of an effective workforce strategy, including high perf- includes high-performing employee benefits, out-of-the-box thinking and HR management, the employee experience, and financial well-being are necessary to drive your organization to success in the new normal. So as your business strategies continue to react in response to the current challenges, your workforce strategy will have to adapt as well. As of today, returning to the workplace for non-essential workers has begun in all 50 states. According to a recent survey from the Gensler Research Institute, only 12% of U.S. workers want to work from home full-time. Most want to return to the workplace, but with critical changes. At first, my reaction to this statement was that it seems somewhat counterintuitive. Prior to the coronavirus epidemic, formal and informal polling of what was important to workers suggested that working from home was a desired perk. But when I took a closer look at this statement, I realized that the reference to full-time is what makes it more interesting. It's not that people don't want flexibility in their work schedules, they just want to have a choice. And over the past 12 weeks, the mandatory shutdowns and stay-at-home orders have shown us that working from home may not be all it's cracked up to be. The slide you're looking at now shows more data from the same Gensler survey. The data concluded that workers want to come back to the office, but not the same office they left. They expect changes in physical workspace, more social distancing, more cleaning, and more discipline from others to follow strict hygiene guidelines. The biggest expectation of change, however, is in workplace policy, from coming to or staying at work when you're sick, to working from home, 
to business travel and more. Another topic that will be challenging business leaders is how to balance the need to implement workplace safety best practices with individuals or groups that elect not to comply with those best practices. We're seeing it every day in social situations where stay-at-home restrictions have been loosened. People will be people, and with the need to socialize and be physically close, compounded by the complete absence of interpersonal contact during this long isolation period, danger and risk of infection may just be overshadowed. What will we do if coworkers won't keep social distance? What will we do if our recommended best practice is to wear a face mask and someone forgets or refuses? In this session, we'll address questions in three key areas affecting returning to the workplace. Safety and compliance, paid sick leave in the Family First Act, and we'll examine some of the remote working realities that you may not yet be thinking about. Some may be questions we've heard and addressed in previous sessions that may still be relevant and worth examining. Others will be new and based on experiences we're having in early phases of our returns to work. Keep in mind the questions specific to state law are best held for your one digital consultant directly as they vary state by state and guidance is very fluid right now. So now I'd like to turn our focus to our team of experts. Starting with the area of safety and compliance, Jamie, we're seeing many employers be beginning to phase into reopening and bringing their employees back to the workplace. One of the big questions we're getting is, how do I respond if an employee has symptoms or has been exposed to COVID-19? Well, first, employers should send employees home immediately if they have symptoms or notify you that they've been exposed to COVID-19. So you should engage in additional sanitization, make sure everything is cleaned well, obtain the employee's contact history uh, for anybody that they've had sustained close contact with and areas that uh, were touched within the workplace. Um, you will need to notify those people who may have come into contact with the employee and send them home and take any other precautions necessary or recommended by government and health authorities. So keep in mind that employers must keep the identity of the infected individual confidential. If the employee says you can disclose their name, employers should get that statement in writing with appropriate authorization and release language. Um, so for infected employees who or people are suspected of infection because of exposure, they should not return to work until they satisfy the CDC's guidelines for returning to work or they otherwise receive medical certification to return to work. Um, and this can include uh, confirmed negative testing for COVID-19. And the CDC currently recommends two types of strategies. Um, for a symptom-based strategy, persons with or people who have COVID-19 who have symptoms or were directed to care for themselves at home may discontinue isolation under uh, the following conditions. So they have to have at least three days or 72 hours have passed since uh, recovery, which is defined as you know when they no longer have a fever without having to use fever-reducing medications and improvement in their respiratory symptoms like their cough, shortness of breath. In addition to that, they have to have, it has to have been at least 10 days 
since their symptoms have first appeared. So there is that waiting period and then that symptom resolution period on top of it. For the testing-based strategy, uh, people who have symptoms and were told to care for themselves at home can't come to work until they have a resolution of their fever. The fever is gone, again, without the use of fever-inducing, excuse me, fever-reducing medications. And uh, improvement in respiratory symptoms, again, that cough and shortness of breath. In addition to that, they have to have negative test results for COVID-19 from at least two consecutive uh, results that were done at least 24 hours apart. Thanks, Jamie. Another concern we're hearing every day is around the use of personal protective equipment in the workplace. Many employers are asking if they can or should require the use of face masks. Can an employer require the use of face masks? And if so, how do they manage it? Well, first and foremost, employers must follow their local and state ordinances regarding face masks. And so you should also follow uh, OSHA requirements and guidelines for face masks, including any industry-specific rules. So if you're going to be providing face masks, uh, OSHA requires that employers provide training on how to use them, including donning and doffing and disposal. Employers may be responsible for cleaning and maintaining the mask, and they also have to implement a written respiratory protection program with worksite-specific procedures. So more generally, this includes uh, complying with OSHA's PPE standard as well as the respiratory program standard. And employers who require employees to bring their own masks uh, must also reimburse them for the cost. So businesses who are not required to wear masks may still require their employees to wear masks in an effort to minimize the spread of COVID-19. So if you're making employees wear masks, employers must still follow OSHA's PPE and respiratory standards, as I previously mentioned. Um, Employers should assess their operations to determine what would be appropriate under the circumstances. Now, you may say, well, what if somebody requests an accommodation? Well, in that instance, employers should follow local and state ordinances, as well as engage in the interactive process consistent with the Americans with Disabilities Act. So if someone says that their disability prevents them from wearing one, they should have a healthcare provider submit information to support the request. And the employer will need to determine what other methods can be put in place to accommodate those employees who can't wear a mask. Similarly, if someone says religion prevents them from wearing a mask, the interactive process should occur to determine what alternate processes may be uh, provided uh, to those employees to be consistent with safety requirements. And some possibilities may be providing those employees with a closed door space in which to work, um, extending social distances, or implementing barriers between workers. That's great. Thanks, Jamie. Um, Here's another great question that's been on everyone's mind since the gradual return to uh, the workplace started. We need our employees to return to the work site, but we want to do whatever we can to ensure that our employees are healthy to protect other employees and our customers. So what testing can we require and how can we administer it? So first, employers can ask if employees are experiencing symptoms related to COVID-19. So although you can't ask about a medical diagnosis, you can inquire about the symptoms that the employee may be experiencing, like fever, uh, 
persistent cough and those kinds of things. You should rely on the CDC and other reputable sources for guidance on what the emergency, or excuse me, emerging symptoms are that are associated with the disease. Uh, so this should be done in a confidential setting if it's done verbally. If it's done using a form, the form should be stored separate from the employee's personnel file and in a secure location with limited access. Uh, employers can also take uh, employee temperatures upon entry to the workplace. The person administering the temperature reading should be trained on how to conduct the reading accurately. And this also has to be done in a confidential and sanitary environment. Employers should keep in mind that a normal temperature reading does not necessarily mean that the person does not have the virus. Uh, employers can require that employees get tested for COVID-19 before they're permitted to return to work. Employees who get tested should provide documentation supporting their ability to return to work, which could be uh, a healthcare provider form, a stamp, or email. Um, because of the current inaccessibility of tests in some places, employers should provide employees with sufficient advance notice of this requirement so that they can plan accordingly. Now, employers can test employees themselves uh, before permitting them to return to work. Um, this has to be done in a manner to ensure accurate and reliable results. There are many things to consider if you're using this option, such as the quality of the test, uh, testing has not been standardized yet, and so the quality varies widely. Uh, think about the invasiveness of the test. Uh, a saliva test would be among the least invasive to employees. Uh, training the person administering the test and conducting the test, in, again, in a sanitary and confidential environment. Um, employers should review guidance from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration about what is considered safe and accurate testing, as well as guidance from the CDC or other public authorities. Uh, and be sure to consider the incidence of false positives or false negatives associated with a particular test before using it. Thanks again, Jamie. Those are great insights. Now let's turn our attention to the area of paid sick leave and the Families First Act. There have been and continue to be a number of proposed legislative changes to the original act. David, can you give us an update on where we are in terms of additional or extended assistance benefits? Sure, Tom, thank you. Uh, the, the short answer is it looks like something new is gonna happen, but the big question remaining is exactly which kind of approach is gonna get the green light from Congress and the president within the next package. So there's a bunch of proposals right now on the table. The Senate has one in hand that got passed by the House on Friday, but there's been no further action on it. As you can see from the slide there, there's several approaches um, that include you know, stimulus checks or additional unemployment or even paying people bonuses that go back to work. So whichever way it does go, you know, the, the, the concept in order to work has gotta be to get money back into the hands of people who really need it. And the problem there is that we've got 35 million people that have hit the unemployment rolls so extending the kind of enhanced unemployment benefits is probably the key way to do that. Whatever plan ends up being the way that gets sent to the president, you can be pretty sure that something additional is going to be coming within the next couple of weeks. So One Digital always stays on top of the stuff and will continue to keep informed. So stay tuned on that. Thanks, David. Sounds like uh, really good news for the struggling economy that we have. 
Uh, Sean, uh, another big and lingering question is, once we decide to bring our employees back to the workplace, what do I do if they refuse? Thanks, Tom. So really, there could be a number of different reasons why an employee would refuse to return to work. So an employee could have childcare issues, or maybe they're just afraid of contracting COVID-19. For now, let's focus on an employee who refuses to return to work because of the virus. Maybe this employee is in a high-risk group, has an underlying health condition, or is simply just afraid to return. In general, employees can only refuse to work if they believe they are in imminent danger. So OSHA's definition of this, of imminent danger, is any conditions or practices in a place of employment which are such that a danger exists which could reasonably be expected to cause death or serious physical harm. So clearly these situations will have to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. If a company doesn't have any known employees who contracted COVID-19 and have safety protocols in place, then that situation probably doesn't meet the definition of imminent danger. However, if there has been a widespread infection in the workplace, that may in fact rise to the definition of imminent danger. As far as employees with underlying health conditions, the EOC has provided guidance and said that employees with disabilities that put them at a high risk for complications may request telework as a reasonable accommodation to reduce their chances of infection during a pandemic. If you are an employer who is unable to offer telework, you may have to consider an alternative accommodation such as a leave of absence. I've also had questions on whether an employee can stay home under FMLA to avoid contracting the virus. The EOC has said that leave taken by an employee for a purpose of avoiding exposure to pandemic influenza would not be protected under the FMLA. Employers need to be sensitive and understanding to each employee's situation. Consider adopting flexible leave policies for your employees. I would be very cautious and hesitant to let an employee go who refused to return to work. It's really important to go through the interactive process and consider all of the laws that protect employees. Yeah, you know, balancing what you can do and what you should do has always been, you know, a challenge for business leaders. The answer isn't always as easy as a regulation, right? So, Sean, as we approach the summer months, you mentioned something that's now on, uh, now or soon will be on everybody's mind. Childcare and the prospect of not having summer camps for our kids to attend. Now that the school year is coming to an end, are employees eligible for childcare leave under either the Paid Sick Leave Act and or the Emergency Family Medical Leave Act during these months? So it's a great question. So the FFCRA provides employees with up to 12 weeks of paid leave who are unable to work due to bona fide need for leave to care for a child whose school or place of care is closed or unavailable for reasons related to COVID-19. So the key point here is reasons related to COVID-19. So if you have an employee who requests leave because schools are closed for the summer, they would not be eligible for the paid leave. Now that presents another question. What about closures of summer camps? The FFCRA regulations specifically include summer camps in the definition of place of care. So as long as summer camp is closed due to COVID-19 reasons, the employee would be eligible for paid leave. Now that school is coming to an end, as an employer, you need to make sure that your employees are using this paid time appropriately. Remember, you've been receiving tax credits for the payments related to the childcare leave. 
If your employee is no longer using the paid childcare leave benefit for one of the qualifying reasons, you would not be entitled to any tax credits. Also, as a reminder, employers must request and retain detailed documentation and or certification in support of leave. I think it would be very prudent to have employees recertify the need for leave during summer months. Yeah, this is very timely advice. Thanks, Sean. One of the defining aspects of work life in this pandemic has been nearly universal move to working from home. As I mentioned earlier, this hasn't been by choice, but by necessity. We've all learned a lot about remote working, and the thing to know is that it will continue to be a large part of how we work into the future. What I'd like our panel to do now is help us look into the future a bit and discuss some of those things that we may not be thinking about today, but will definitely be realities to face regarding remote working. Jamie, can you give us some insight into a scenario that might play out? Sure. So uh, when somebody requests or needs to work from home, it's easy for us to say, sure. But there may be additional considerations that employers should be thinking about in those circumstances. Uh, make sure you're reviewing minimum wage requirements for the state or locality in which the person is now working from home. Uh, this includes states that have their own salary basis requirement for exempt employees. And keep in mind that some cities have local employment taxes. If they now are working from home, that may change uh, for them. And this may be impacted depending on where they work, obviously. Paid sick leave requirements may change depending on where the person is working from. And other things like workers' comp and business license requirements may also come into play. But another sticky issue are state benefits. So, for example, employees are only, only eligible for something like, say, state uh, paid family medical leave if they are employees in that state. And each state has its own rules for determining uh, PFML eligibility. So if an employee is no longer working in a particular state, then they're no longer an employee there, right? Uh, so their uh, unemployment insurance and any other state employment tax or benefit that follows the UI rules must be reviewed to ensure that it's paid to the state where they now work. So when an employee's work occurs in more than one state, the UI rules determine where the employment is localized by examining whether the work in one state is incidental, which means like temporary or transitory, or isolated occurrences as compared to work in another state. Now, during the pandemic, an employee's work from home arrangement may be temporary and isolated if the plan is to return to the office when orders are lifted or it's otherwise safe to return to the office. However, if the employee will remain working from home long-term uh, and not return to the office, the arrangement obviously is not temporary. And the work from home is localized in the person's home state for the purpose of state UI and other benefits that follow that same rule. Now, there's a caveat to that. So not all states follow the UI definition for all mandated benefits. For example, New York requires employers to purchase disability benefits and paid family leave coverage for any employee who spends at least 30 days working in New York within a calendar year. Once an employee has worked their 30th day in New York, the employer has four weeks to obtain the required uh, disability benefits or PFML policy. So it's really important that employers review the state employee uh, employment mandates and benefits for the states where their work from home employees live 
regardless of whether the work from home arrangement is long term or temporary. Thanks, Jamie. You know, it's so important to be aware of your state and local guidelines. That's really, uh, really great advice. The concept of uh, remote work is not new to most, but as we've discussed, this isn't something that just is just going to be an exception, but instead it's going to be the rule for most organizations. Leaders will now have to adapt to communicating, managing performance, and keeping teams engaged in a new and different way. Sean, can you share what might be some best practices? Sure, thanks Tom. So literally overnight, many of us managers have had to learn and deal with managing remote teams. So when you think about it, a team is a group of employees who are all working together towards a common goal. In addition to staying connected with our employees, as leaders, it's also our responsibility to keep our employees connected to each other. That has been a definitive change that we all need to be aware of and work on. Since working remotely, employees have become very task-oriented. Many, many of my clients have noticed an increase of productivity and they think it's great. Of course, productivity has increased. Employees are working longer hours and socializing less with their colleagues. But what will happen over a period of time if employees engage less with each other? The teams will start to fragment and employees become siloed. As a manager, if you don't keep your employees engaged with each other, ultimately you will see this curve from increased productivity turn to low productivity because employees aren't working together as a team. And while being task-oriented may work for a short period of time, it will distract from team collaboration and will have a negative impact on your team's overall results. So here are some really key questions to ask yourself. Does my team need more opportunities to get to know each other personally, such as family, hobbies, or interests? Does my team need more opportunities to be lighthearted, laugh, or not be so serious? Does my team need to develop a greater understanding of each person's individual work responsibilities, skills, and capabilities? Without the benefit of daily face-to-face -face interactions, your team doesn't have the opportunities that would naturally occur if everyone were working together in the same location. One simple recommendation is to spotlight one employee on their achievements during each team meeting. This, is not only, this not only reinforces, reinforces great work, it also helps the team know they are part of a group with high-performing coworkers. Those are great tips, Sean. Thank you. Uh, David, you know, as I mentioned in our last advisory session, once we begin to climb back up the economic curve to recovery and employers have reinstated their furloughed or laid off employees, the next step to growth will be recruiting new hires. With that in mind, how has the coronavirus pandemic affected the way employment offers are going to be handled? Well, there are a couple new wrinkles that employers are facing these days. So first, what if they make an employment offer in good faith, but then their circumstances change, you know, financially, or they're not allowed to reopen yet or things like that. And they feel like they have to rescind the offer. So in general, employers still hold all the cards in this situation. Candidates who have an offer rescinded don't really have much in the way of legal recourse. Um, although it does vary from states to state, unless it's otherwise specified, employment situations are pretty much at will, right? We know that. But what about a case where the employer is still all good and they're ready to go, but then the candidate comes down with COVID? 
So the EEOC has actually stepped in here with some guidance because they sort of serve as the day-to-day referee on ADA and anti-discrimination matters. And so they've made a recommendation, and that is that you should try and allow a delay in the start date. Um, And only if for good sort of documentable business reasons, you cannot wait for that person should you pull the offer. So in all these cases, though, you should be taking into consideration the time and effort and expense that went into recruiting the candidate in the first place. A delay is just so much more palatable than just pulling an offer, even if you have to leave the delay time uncertain. If the candidate was sufficiently excited about your opportunity, they may be willing to just wait it out with you rather than just leaving with a bad experience as their memory of your organization. So remember that this is a temporary condition and you still want to be protecting your employment brand to the best of your ability. Yep, thanks David. You know, because as we know, an employer's reputation can be significantly impacted by how they treat prospects for hire and this is great advice. You know, another big future consideration for employers who have historically housed their teams in offices is a financial one. So David, what's gonna happen when remote working becomes the norm and reliance on traditional offices becomes less and less? Yeah, I think this is just one of the really interesting kind of unintended consequences, maybe unforeseen developments to this this whole piece of it. And that is that I think that there's gonna be a real financial impact on brick and mortar expense for businesses um, and how that impact can even trickle down through an entire kind of economic ecosystem. Maybe it's from transit or restaurants or shops or other services that kind of rely on these big business centers um, or large office buildings or office parks. So here's, here's an example. Before the coronavirus hit, three of New York City's largest commercial tenants were Barclays Bank and J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley. And they had many tens of thousands of workers in the towers all across Manhattan. But the New York Times reported just this week that leaders of all three of those firms have decided that it's highly unlikely that all their workers will ever return to those buildings. They're now wondering whether it's worth continuing to spend so much money on Manhattan's wild rents. They're mindful that maybe public health considerations make it not such a good idea for people to be crammed in altogether so much. Perhaps it may not be as viable as it once was. And now we're hearing, of course, about other big employers like Facebook and Google that have extended work from home policies all through uh, the remainder of this year. And that means, of course, that some people may not be returning. And uh, most timely, Twitter, Uh, just last Tuesday, told all of its employees that they could work remotely forever if they want to and if their position allows for it, right? That's the the caveat here. So the the summary of all this is that this could be a big win for CFOs, right? It could be meaningful to the bottom line in terms of brick-and-mortar savings and a win for kind of the modern thinking of the workforce who's expecting more flexible workplaces, right? They want these flexible arrangements. They don't want to be exclusively at home, but they sure want some options there. And so HR has a big role to play in making all of that stuff work. Um, So there will be negative impacts on the commercial real estate industry and everyone's sort of connected with that. You don't really know whether it's a net negative or a net positive 
uh, economically, but it should be a net positive from workforce satisfaction standpoint. And we just bring it up today because we want you to be aware of the situation and for you all to be prepared for that conversation as it may come up sooner rather than later. Wow, so many big and important things to think about. Thanks, Jamie, David, and Sean, and thank you all for joining us today. I'd like to share a thought as we wrap up. As evidenced by what we're seeing around the country the past week, it's clear that we're living in a time of uncertainty and unrest. The current social, economic, and health crises have forced us to rethink everything about how we lead others and how we lead ourselves. In a recent discussion with a leadership development colleague on the current state of our society, she got me focused on something needed today more now than ever, and that's empathy. Empathy is listening, sharing, and acting without judgment or bias. That's something we're all gonna need as we adapt to the new normal, and our hope is that together, we'll find our way to a peaceful, healthy, and prosperous future sooner than later. So as you need it and need us, One Digital's strategic workforce consultants are here with expert advice and support to help you navigate through these challenging times. Don't hesitate to reach out and learn more. Each of these employer advisory sessions is also available as a podcast, and you can view this and past sessions as well as an informative FAQ document on our COVID-19 advisory hub at onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. Stay safe, healthy, and stay connected with your family, friends, and coworkers. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. There's never been a time more than now during which our commitment to standing as one with our customers and providing peace of mind is more important. We are committed to providing the guidance you need to make complex decisions even in the most challenging times. For additional resources, thought leadership, or for the latest employer information related to the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. Thank you.